Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24, and as you do that, let me pray one more time as we begin to hear the Lord's Word. Father, we pray that you would bless now the reading and the preaching of your Word. Help us to have a genuine sense that this indeed is your Word, that it's vital to us, that we live not simply by food, but that we live by your Word, that you speak to us. And so give us ears to hear, give us faith to believe all that you say. Help us to trust in your word. Change us by it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read a big portion of this chapter, but not quite all of it. And so I will, I'll direct your attention as we get to the, the part where I'll skip over of where to go next. But follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, Then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening. The time came when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden who had, whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. 
When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me into the way, in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household all these things. Now turn to verse 50. The servant told Laban and Bethuel all that had taken place and how the Lord had prospered him. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he said, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman, women arose and rose, rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Berlahe Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now there are different ways that you can preach the Scriptures. One way to preach the Scriptures is to enter into the forest and examine the details of a single tree and look at all the intricacies of the sap and the bark and the limbs and the leaves. And then you could, that's, that's one way, you could examine the details of individual verses and go through it very uh, slowly, very minutely. And actually, I look forward to doing more of that uh, as we we're planning to, to look at the book of James in a, in a couple of weeks. As we finish up this section of Genesis, Genesis through Genesis twenty five eighteen, um, but as we've been going through the book of Genesis, we've been taking a broader ap- approach. We've been looking at the forest rather than the individual trees. We've been looking at the broad, sweeping, 
uh, work of God in his people early on in the history of redemption. And that's what we'll do today in these 67 verses. There's no way I could do all of those verses in, in that minute fashion in one sermon. Uh, and so this morning, as we look at uh, these 67 verses, this broad theme comes to our minds of the providence of God. In, in this passage, God works by providence to give Isaac a wife. And through Isaac and Rebekah, the promised offspring would be produced and they would live in the promised land. The broader theme for us is this. God works by providence to fulfill his promises to his people, both to preserve us and to bless us. Well, how do we know that this passage is about God's providence? Well, we have hints throughout, uh, throughout the narrative. Uh, we have Abraham saying, uh, God will send his angel before you in verse 7. You have the timing of Rebekah's arrival on the scene. It was just at the right time. It seemed to be coincidental. You have Rebekah's meeting the test, this test that the servant throws out of what she will do. You have the servant saying in verse 27, The Lord, He is the one who has led me. You have the part that uh, we skipped over of the servant repeating the story to Bethuel and Laban. Kind of emphasizing the work of God in all of these ordinary details of life. You have the servant again saying, The Lord led me in the right way, in the faithful way. And then you also have in verse 52, Laban's and Bethuel's agreement. This is from the Lord. They saw the details of what had happened and recognized the hand of God in it. So maybe you're wondering, though, what is providence? What is that word? What do I mean by that word providence? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, puts it like this. God's work of providence, works of providence, are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Or maybe this one, a more updated definition by J.I. Packer might help you. The doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces like fortune, chance, luck, or fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust Obey and rejoice, knowing that all is for one spiritual and eternal good. You can think of other stories throughout Scripture that teach this same truth. Think about Joseph, how he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and and God rose him to prominence in the land of Egypt as the right-hand man who would ultimately devise a plan to save Israel from famine. Or you have the story of Esther. Do you remember the story of Esther? Where she was just a no one who somehow, just seemingly by coincidence, gets brought into uh, the king's home and becomes his wife. And the words of Mordecai ring in our ears. Perhaps you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. God's providence is put on display throughout that story. Both of those stories in preserving his people in saving them from famine, in saving them from persecution. Or think even of Christ himself, the perfect storm of God's providence, of sinful men who 
conspire together to put to death this religious leader, this man who's making, uh, who's stirring up the crowds. And in the instance of Christ, God preserves his people yet again. And yet this time it's by Christ giving his own life that God's people are preserved. I hope you can see the relevance of this for our lives as well. Is there such a thing as luck? Just happen to be good fortune? Is there uh, the roll of the dice chance? Is there fate? This big ball called earth is just spinning around, around and around. And is anybody in charge of it? The doctrine of providence tells us yes. Not only is there someone in charge of the universe, there is someone who is designing and planning the future for us, for our good. There is one who is above and over all things who is weaving together the course of events throughout the world with a purpose and a definite plan and end in mind. And we see this in our text. Particularly, we see it in that God works by providence to give Isaac a wife. And through Isaac and Rebekah, the promised offspring would be produced and live in the promised land. First notice Abraham's command, just walking through the text, first of all. Look at verses 1 through 9. This is where Abraham gives this command to his servant to go uh, to his fathers, to his kindred land, and find a wife for Isaac. His concerns, number one, his concern is that his offspring would be preserved. He, he, Sarah has just died. The, the death of Sarah has been just reported. Abraham knows that death awaits him soon enough. And so he is preparing a plan for the future, for the future of his offspring. He knows that Isaac will need a wife to continue his seed, to continue his offspring. And so he's concerned first for the preservation of his offspring, but notice he's also concerned for the purity of his offspring. Do not take a wife from here, but go to my homeland. Go to where people will be of, have the same sort of ways of living and the same fear of God. Do not take a wife from here in this land. However, he also has a concern for the presence of the offspring in the land. He insists that Isaac is not to go to his homeland, but is to remain in this land that is promised of God. Notice also his faith. The, there are several questions that come out throughout this narrative uh, that cause us to wonder, is it all going to work out the way that God wants it to work out? What if she doesn't want to come back with me to the land, the servant says. And yet Abraham responds in faith. This is the God who swore to me. He spoke to me and swore this to me. To your offspring, I will give this land. He says, he will send your, his angel before you. He will prepare the way and you shall take a wife for my son there. In verses 10 through 14, we see the servant's obedience. Uh, he, he does swear this oath to Abraham. He says, I will do it just as you have said, despite his lingering questions about whether it would work out. Notice his prayer in verse 12. He says, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love. That's covenant faithfulness. Be faithful to your covenant. Show me steadfast love. Show it to my master Abraham. 
And then also notice his plan, his test in verses 13 and 14. He devises this plan of how he will identify the girl who will be right for Isaac. I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. He makes up this plan, this test, to identify the woman, and this would be a sign of God's providence to him that he had led him in the right direction. Notice about the, si- the, the test, though. It's not even a supernatural test. It's, it's just let it be this way. And what it will show about the woman who does this is her, her servant's heart. It will, it will show that she will be a faithful wife for his master's son, Isaac. She responds in exactly the way he is looking for. And we see this interaction between the servant and Rebekah in verses 15 to 28. Now her timing evidences the, promise, the, the providence of God in verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, this it seems coincidental. I'm speaking this and this woman walks up. And she's beautiful. And she might be the one. She does exactly as... The servant had prayed that God would lead him to. Her service is evidence of her character. That she will prove to be a faithful wife for Isaac. Her eagerness, notice her eagerness to serve. She quickly, she ran. She does all this quickly and uh, eagerly she waters not only, gives water not only to the servant but to the camels, which would be a lot of water. It would be Uh, continuous, going back to draw and bring back to the camels. And even her family is evidence of God's favor, that it would be of the same family of Abraham. After seeing all this, the servant worships in verses 26 and 27. This is what was read earlier in our passage. He worships the Lord for his covenant faithfulness, for showing that he is who he says he is, that he will keep his promises. In this large section of verses 29 to 61, we see the servants' interactions with Bethuel and with Laban. They agree in verse 50, this is God's work. We agree, we see this. And then in verse 60, we see their blessing. This should be familiar to you as well. Well, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. Sounds like a, a multitude of Offspring, it sounds like nations coming from Abraham. And may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. The same blessing that was given previously to Isaac. This again points to the providence of God. In verses 62 through 67, plays out like a love story. And they, they both see each other from afar, Isaac and Rebekah. They don't know who they are. We know how the story is going to turn out. We know all the characters involved. But it's a mystery to them. She sees Isaac from far away. He sees her from far away. They come together and Isaac accepts her and loves her. He's comforted. His mother had recently died. This is a way that God not only preserves his people, but also brings joy and comfort to his people. And in this way, God worked to provide a wife for Isaac. 
So Isaac and Rebekah would become the new patriarch and matriarch over the people of God. The promise of God would continue. The seed of Abraham would be preserved and they would dwell in the land that he had promised them. And it would be through this offspring that God would fulfill his promise to bless all nations through Abraham. Just as all who were connected to Abraham were blessed, all who were connected to this offspring, Christ, through faith are blessed. Well, what does this story teach us, though? This story teaches us that God works by providence to fulfill his promises, to preserve and bless us. So notice a few things, four in particular, we learn about the providence of God from this story. First notice this, that the providence of God does not exclude human actions or plans. You have Abraham's plan to find a, a wife for his daughter. He knew that God would bless him, that he would keep his promise, that, God, that his offspring would be preserved, and yet he makes a plan. Notice also the servant's plan. He, is not, he, he trusts in the providence of God. He knows that God will lead him, and yet he makes plans for finding this wife. Abraham assured him that he would find a wife. And we may even miss Rebecca's plans. She kind of just enters into the story out of nowhere. But consider all that must have gone in uh, to her day, in planning her day and drawing, going to the well to draw water, all the intricacies, the details of her life. God is arranging all of these things, even the actions of humans, in order for this perfect storm for them to meet at just the right time and be identified as a wife suitable for Isaac. The providence of God does not exclude human actions or plans. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So we might be put into two extremes here. One, we might live in a sort of functional atheism where We make plans as though God doesn't exist. We go about our day uh, making plans about next year or five years down the road, not thinking a bit about what God might have in store for us. And then there's another extreme where we might think, well, God is sovereign. This idea of uh, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be, fate. It doesn't matter what I do because God's sovereign. He's working all things for his glory, so I'll be passive. I don't really have to plan or work or do any of these things. It turns into passivity. But rather, we are taught in Scripture, in the book of James in particular, that we ought to make plans, but we ought to make plans with God in mind. We ought to understand that He is sovereign, that He is working by providence. We ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. We will move there. And we will make these plans. So rather than calling us to passivity, God's providence calls us to prayer-saturated action. Rather than sitting and doing nothing and thinking, well, God's going to work no matter what I do, the providence of God actually calls us to action, to prayer-saturated action. Abraham's servants, Abraham's servant prays. He knows that God is going to work to provide a wife, and yet he prays to the Lord, give me success. I'm going to do this. I'm going to seek a a wife for Isaac. Give me success. Show your covenant faithfulness to us. He's moved to prayer and action to find Rebekah. 
John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, says this, You can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. For many of us, maybe most of us, the problem is not a lack of action. We might be very busy in all that we are doing. We might get a lot of done. Do you get a lot of done during a lot done during the week? In your job or in your home? We have a lot to do and we get a lot done. Our problem may not be a lack of action, but how many of us can say that we are people of prayer saturated action? That we are acting for the glory of God and it is supported by, lifted up by a life of prayer as we go about actions to glorify God. A lack of prayer, we like, us pastors like going after lack of prayer because that is the easiest sin to harp on because so few of us do it regularly and intensely and eagerly as we know we ought to. This calls us, though, God's providence calls us not to passivity, but to action, to prayer-saturated action. Consider your own prayer life and your own actions that are supported by that prayer life for the glory of God. This calls us to initiative, taking initiative for the glory of God. Consider how this might work out practically. So you Many of you, not all of you, but many of you are in in neighborhoods. You have neighbors, some who are believers, some who don't trust Christ, some who don't know God. What what would it mean for you to have a prayer-saturated initiative towards your neighbors, in loving your neighbors, in serving your neighbors, in getting to know them, that you might be a blessing to someone else? What might it mean for you to pursue your spouse in, in this sort of way? All of these things are under the sovereignty and providence of God, and yet we are called to action in the midst of them. Raising your kids in the nourishment and admonition of the Lord. You know that God has chosen a people for Himself. He has chosen those people from the foundation of the world, and yet does that cause us to not seek the good of our children and pointing them to Christ? Prayer-saturated action. Or children, even you should have some initiative in this. What would it mean for you to to prayerfully consider what you might do for your parents? Your parents don't have to ask you to take the trash out for you to take the trash out. They don't have to you can you can nourish them in the word, you can preach the gospel to them, you can serve them, and so give glory to God. Consider your service and excellence in your job for the glory of God. Consider what this might mean for your life in regards to missions. We are led to prayerful action by the providence of God. And when we see God work in the midst of seemingly ordinary events of life, it leads us to worship Him. Providence doesn't exclude human action, rather It leads us, it calls us to prayer-saturated action for His glory. And then it leads us to worship. Abraham's servant saw what God did. He saw all of these events, all of these seemingly ordinary activities coming together for a glorious result. 
and he worships God for his covenant faithfulness. Exactly what he had prayed for. When we see God working out his plans through his providence for his glory and for the good of his people, we are led to worship him. When's the last time you recognized the work of God? It's in the seemingly ordinary activities of life and you just worshiped him. You're just amazed at his work. I told you, I think it was last week, about the sale of our home, how we had been praying uh, to sell our home so that we could move to the area. We had had a buyer and then it fell through and we were you know, in the depths of despair. What are we going to do, Lord? We got to have a buyer by this certain date uh, or our contract on the house here in Wake Forest will fall through. It was Friday. We were praying. We were praying. Many of you were praying. And God answered a prayer and we had a buyer in the nick of time. It seemed coincidental, like what's going on here? And I was in my office when I got the news and you would have thought a Car- I was listening to a Carolina football game or something. I was fist pumping. I was, yes, thank you, Lord. I was praising God for his work in something as simple as trying to sell our home. This is what we're called to do when we see God work. Don't just ignore it. Don't just think, yep, that's God doing his thing. Worship him. Tell of God meeting your needs. As you pray for God to work, if you see God work in some area, Tell your brothers and sisters, tell others about what God has done and let us worship him together. Leads us to worship. Now, as I think about worship, leading us to worship, I have some responsibility to lead you in worship well. Our music leader, whoever's leading each week, has some responsibility in the arrangement of the songs. We elders, as we plan the service and lead in it, But ultimately, it's not me or any other person who leads you in worship. It is the work of God. It is the glorious display of His design in our lives and in this world, which leads us to worship Him. So recognize the work of God. Recognize it and let it lead you to praising Him. In song, in prayer, in fist pumps, let it lead you to worship Him. Because ultimately what we see is the providence of God leads to our blessing. This is a huge comfort to us. Isaac and Rebekah are married. Isaac loves her. I love that he included that detail in the story, that Isaac loved her. There's so much packed in to that phrase. And he's comforted by her. Now this works for the preservation of God's people. The offspring through whom the nations would be blessed, would be produced. But also it works for the joy of God's people. This story is not simply about the preservation of God's people, but also the blessing, the joy of God's people, that Isaac was blessed with joy, with comfort at his wife. He he provided not only someone who would provide the offspring, but someone who would bring joy to his heart. That's how God likes to work. He works for the preservation of his people, the church. And he also works by his his providence for our joy. There is great comfort 
in this, that God is working in His providence for, for not only the good of His people, the preservation of His people, but also the joy of His people. This casts out fear and worry and doubt. God will work. God is working by His providence for the preservation of His people and for the joy of His people. John Macduff was an old Scottish divine. He said, Every thread in the web of life is woven by the great craftsman. Not one movement in these swiftly darting needles is chance, but all is by His direction and all is to result in good. B.B. Warfield says, A firm faith in the universal providence of God is the solution of all earthly troubles. So maybe you're in a time of of fear, uh, a time of worry. Let this understanding of God's work by providence be a comfort to you. That there is nothing happening in our lives outside of God's control, outside of God's divine. This includes, the amazing thing is this includes even the sinful choices of men and women. Does that shake you up a little bit? Does that cause you concern that even sinful choices are under the providence of God? If so, then consider Christ Himself. God designed that Christ would be crucified for sinners. And that plan included the sinful choices of those who would crucify Him. Maybe you're in a time of, of fear and sorrow. Maybe you're in a time of just bitterness and complaining. But really, this idea of divine providence excludes all complaining when we understand that that God is in control, that He is designing these things in our lives ultimately for our good. Now, it may be difficult to understand, may be difficult to accept or to interpret, well, how is this for my good? But by faith, we understand that God is sovereign, that He is working. Many believers generally are in a time of fear about his church. They fear loss of respect, a loss of biblical values, it seems, in America, possible malignment and even persecution one day. But if we believe in divine providence, then we have nothing to fear. The God who preserved the seed of Abraham and Sarah through finding Isaac a wife, he also caused barren Rebekah to have twins he placed joseph as second in command in egypt so he might save israel from the famine he led israel out of egypt and into the promised land and he is the very same god who came to the virgin mary that she might have a son god's son jesus he's the same god who by his providence, rescued Jesus from Herod during the slaughter of infant boys. He's the same God who offered up his son for the salvation of sinners. And he has poured out his spirit and is preserving his church until Christ returns. If God has done all this in his providence for the preservation of his people and the joy of his people, will he not also preserve his church today? Will he not also work For our joy, for your joy in the midst of difficulties in life, in the midst of seemingly mundane circumstances here and now, He will. We we are assured that He will do so. 
He is working for his own glory. He is working for the fulfillment of his promises. And nothing gives us greater joy when God gets the glory. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, be the glory, but to your name be the glory. This is what fills us with joy, amazing joy. And we see his glory most visibly, most beautifully expressed in the person and work of Christ our Savior. This is a part of our vision statement. Loving God's glory. So as we consider His work in our individual lives, as we consider His work in our church, let us join together and love God's glory. Let it draw us to worship Him for His goodness, for His grace in our lives. Let it move us to prayerful, to prayer-saturated action. Let it move us to loving God's glory. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, these, these things are, are too deep for us, too difficult for us to understand. But we pray that you might help us to understand and that you might help us that in areas we don't understand to trust you. We know that some things belong to you that we won't ever be able to understand in this life. And so as we deal with difficult cir- circumstances in our lives, and as we consider your, your providence in these things, we pray that you would give us a deep contentment. Not that that won't include sorrow or crying out to you in prayer, but we pray that you would lead us to thankfulness. Because we know that even in the midst of worry and sorrows that you are in control. We pray that you would cause us to consider what areas you might be leading us to work in. That we would become a people of prayer. That we would be saturated in prayer. And that we would work for your glory. That we would work in our neighborhoods and in the community. That we would work in our church for your glory as you are working out your plan. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.